Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Japanese horror film Audition, starring Ehi Shina, Ryo Ishibashi, Ren Asugi, and Jun Kunimura. Directed by Takashi Miike. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast, the show where we go back and look at the seminal films of our youth, explore the themes, the characters, and discuss whether or not they hold up today. I'm Gally in Glasgow. And this is Devlin in London. And joining us for the first time, we have our Asian correspondent on the ground. Oh, this is Matt in South Korea. Hello, Matt. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's very, very, very uh, nice to talk to you again. It's been a very long time. Yeah, it's been too long, and I love this show. I've been listening to it every time just to hear your voices, and uh, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. So, Matt, why don't you give us a, a little introduction into yourself and what kind of films you're into, and also why you've, uh, why you've picked the film today. Uh, I'm originally from Richmond, North Yorkshire, in England. Uh, I think we all met through film somehow. We were... Um, making films back home, me and Chris, and uh, or Dev, as he's known on the podcast, and uh, our good friend Sam Hollis. We made lots of little films together. We went to the same uh, technical college to study A-level film, and we went to the same university, the Northern Film School uh, at Leeds Metropolitan University, and we have made several films together uh, in different roles over the years. Yeah, most notably um, your uh, magnum opus, your uh, your graduation film, which which we all worked on, uh, uh, obviously you in the most important capacity, as it was your film. Yes, it was called The Wilds. It was my major production at film school. It was uh, fifteen minutes long. It was the story of uh, loosely based on the the myths of the the beast on Bodmin Moor and the sightings of black panthers in the uh, countryside in England, and it was uh, an exploration of a of a, a monster film, uh, but hopefully done with a, a semblance of reality. It was about a farmer who'd lost his son to this creature and he had to go out and find it and hunt it down. It was really fun to make and uh, uh, yeah, worked with both of you on that one. Yeah, yeah, we had a we had a blast on that one. And uh, if I do remember, yeah, if I do remember, the catering on that production was top notch. <laughs> well, that was my uh, my mum and my nana, who's no longer with us. So uh, thank you, nana. The film's still up on uh, Vimeo, right? Yeah, you can find it on Vimeo. If you just search for The Wilds, uh, you can find it. Well, I tell you what we'll do. We will link it to this episode so that way people get uh, a sort of two-for-one and they'll get to watch The Wilds. And who knows, maybe we'll do an episode on The Wilds in that the future. That would be fun. Sure. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Right. So, Matt, what is the film we're doing today? Okay, I guess it's technically my choice, but we did kind of discuss it a little bit with each other. Uh, we thought with me being in Korea, we should try something Asian, but uh, we chose not to go with a Park Chan-wook or uh, uh, anything like that. We didn't go with a host or anything uh, Korean. We went with a Japanese movie called Audition. So when did you first see Audition? I think it was seen uh, late night on Channel 4, probably as one of their uh, extreme cinema seasons. Uh, probably started about 10, and I'll have been about... Uh, 18 or 19 at the time, I think. And I remember being just completely bored by it. I was just, I found it very mundane. 
completely uh, I was just struggling to stay awake really because I had in my consciousness was already uh, Ring and uh, The Grudge and I didn't know too much about Japanese cinema at the time but I was really looking forward to you know something that would really shock me and grab grab hold and it didn't really and I think I was actually drifting off to sleep when the the extreme aspects of the film began you know towards the end okay I think I was really into Michael Bay at the time and I had no attention span at all I think I'd rather have been watching Con Air than uh, <laughs> Audition at that point for the hundredth time or The Rock or something but uh, I didn't have the patience to deal with it but the cool thing about it looking back was that without giving away too much the thing I appreciate about it now is that structure it's mm -hmm. really interesting uh, the way the film flips it has a very extreme conclusion and a very mundane build-up and uh, the thing that I disliked upon first viewing is one of the things that I like most about it today what about you Devlin um, I think kind of it would have been a similar era I, I remember watching uh, Ring for the first time it would have been like 2002 so I was, uh, it was when I was living in my uh, short-lived, ill-fated uh, ill tenure at Staffordshire University, down your neck of the woods. Um, yeah, great uni. We, uh, uh, me and my housemates, we got a uh, ring on video and we watched it in the kitchen and it freaked everyone out. And I think that was um, like a proper light bulb moment that that was the point at which I discovered that Asian cinema was, was a thing. And it was a thing that I liked and I kind of delved straight into it. So I would have probably seen Audition very soon after that. Um, again, watched it in a room full of people. And again, um, I think everyone was, was I think everyone was, was, um, was sucked into it probably because its reputation was already built by then. I guess that's an, that's an interesting one that we can talk about a little later in terms of the the expectations that you have on a film like this and uh uh like you were talking about the structure being kind of a, a mundane setup and a and a, a very grand guignol finale um but now we we were all we were all hooked and from that point on i was i was delving into a, a lot of uh japanese cinema mainly and then onto korean and other asian cinema uh, how about you, Gals? Yeah, I think I was uh, similar to Matt. Uh, it was a Channel 4 late night, you know, with all these uh, sort of Asian imports that came in. Uh, it was late night Channel 4, normally on a Thursday uh, on a school night, and then just watching it and just being kind of, I've never seen anything like this. And I do remember when, the, when, audition, when I first saw Audition, uh, I remember because I was huge into Tarantino and I think he had seen it and made a quote as like you know it's the most shocking horror film you've ever seen uh, yeah. uh, you know so on and so forth you know, I'm paraphrasing but it was that kind of thing and then when I watched it I had a similar reaction to you Matt where I was like well what is this but my god did it leave a uh, you know primacy versus recency that ending was uh, mm. was something you you can't unsee uh, so it was something that I, I really did gravitate towards. And it was actually part of that whole era when, within the next few years, uh, Tom Cruise's Last Samurai, or <laughs> Dances with Samurai, came right. out. And I just became, like, I loved everything everything Asian, everything Japanese, actually, uh, to the point where, 
yeah it was it was noodles every day and i was trying to learn japanese and god is that a difficult language to to pick up mm, that is true yeah tarantino uh, constantly puts it in his top however many films he enjoys mm-hmm. i think yeah i think he put it in his top 20 of the films that were made since he became a director uh and it was it was certainly in his top 20 for that mm-hmm. Yeah, so high praise indeed. And, and one of the things that you alluded to, Devlin, was the, um, the reaction at the time. Uh, but then also, coming back to this film now, and again, not giving away any, any of my sandwiches, the reaction now. So I've kind of done some digging, looked at contemporary reviews against those reviews that were, that were made in 99. And a lot of them are quite simplistic to the point where they've literally read the film, literally, as in, this is what happens Oh, shock at the end. And some of the subtext and some of the themes, which I think are quite overt and quite obvious, um, they sort of got lost in the in the mire of just what a shocking conclusion Takashi Miike is this provocateur director, yeah. when actually looking at his, uh, his, his, his back catalogue, um, he hasn't actually made that many films that are terribly shocking. But all of his most popular films, Audition, Itchy the Killer, um, and I believe he did a, a sort of trilogy of gangster films. We're all mm. quite, uh, quite yeah. hyper violent in that sort of Japanese splatter-tastic way. And uh, I think Audition kind of unfairly gets gets lumped into that. Sure, I've, I've been told to stress the mi k, the e sound. Uh, my girlfriend speaks a little Japanese, and she says to to stress the mi k. There was a, a lad that I went to film school with who referred to him as Takashi Mike, uh, and all all the time. And, uh, <laughs> And I always wondered if he was right, but, um, you know, I don't think so. Would it be okay if I just uh, talked about our introduction to Japanese cinema a little? Myself and Chris went to the same technical college, and uh, we had a wonderful teacher, a very mind-expanding chap uh, called Andy Willoughby, and he was a big influence. uh, And through that class, we were introduced to a lot of extreme cinema, foreign cinema, band movies. It was such a cool um, A-level the modules were fantastic and really helped cement my love of film, even more so than going to uni and actually making more films practically. The discussion and the film theory in that class is something I look back on really fondly. And uh, my, my introduction was actually uh, through VHS tapes that were going around Catrick Village, where I'm from. And there was, they had two. They were uh, Fist of the North Star and Akira. And they were kind of circulating through this kind of village in uh, North Yorkshire. And all these kids were being exposed to this great anime from uh, Japan. And we'd never seen anything like it. We would just share it around. And then after that, we experienced a lot of Japanese cinema through that film, um, at that A-level film course. And it included, I don't know about you, Chris, exactly, but... Uh, we did a lot of Kurosawa, and we did uh, Ozu and uh, The Life of Oharu, All right, I cool. remember. And a, a lot of uh, Beat Takeshi's work, which I thought was always really cool because he had names, like titles for his movies, like Violent Cop. Mm. And uh, there's another one called Sonatine. Yeah, that yeah, that's really good. And then, yeah, and then J-Horror kind of came either simultaneously or just after that. Uh, so that was kind of my introduction to Japanese cinema. I was wondering about if you had a similar experience because we were in the same class with the same teacher, but at slightly different times. Mm. Oh yeah, it was really um, it was really fortunately timed for me because, as I say, when I was um, in Stoke was when I started watching this stuff. So it would have been like 2002, and I was only there for a year. After I left, I went to do um, the same uh, the same course with the same teacher, Andy. 
So it would have been the year after. And it was before I, I started film school with you guys. Um, and yeah, that was, uh, uh, Andy Willoughby was really good at expanding that, um, the knowledge pool. Um, the, the one that he introduced me to, we didn't watch it in the um, class, but he recommended it to me elsewhere was um, uh, Hiroshi Teshiha, uh, Teshigahara's um, Woman of the Dunes. Mm, I've heard of that recently. I've only seen the trailer. I haven't. It's on a Criterion uh, disc. I think right. they've released it, but I haven't seen it yet. It's uh, it's it's an incredible, um, uh, a very strange kind of uh, like a lot of the um, Japanese. I guess you would call them horror, but I'm not quite sure that's the right genre for it. But um, Japanese sort of exotica cinema of the '60s. Um, it's got a very parable, fable-like story. It's a uh, uh, a young man who's sent into a uh, into a sand dune, and much like uh, Sisyphus, he just has to constantly dig the sand out from in front of a house. Living with this this woman, he's just thrown into this pit, and uh, it's it's a really charged and very strange little story. And from there, um, he also recommended uh, uh, Kaneto Shindo's movies, which I know me and you have seen a few of, especially um, Kuraneko being my favorite. You recommended a lot for my Halloween season this year. We were doing one Halloween, uh, a horror movie every night for October, a horror October. And you recommended a lot of the Shindo movies. There was uh, Kuroneko and... Uh, Onibaba. Uh, what's the other one? Onibaba. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so from from there, that's kind of... I think that's the the, the Japanese cinema that I, that I really, really love, certainly the, in terms of genre stuff. Um, obviously, later on, I also got into kind of more uh traditional drama fair like uh hirokazu koreeda is probably my favorite director um but yeah um i don't know galley did you look into a lot more asian cinema after you started watching the sort of j-horror stuff did it spiral out in any way when j-horror became a thing and everything was lumped into j-horror wasn't it yeah. even if it kind of wasn't horror it was like oh but it's got a female character with long black hair so it must be j-horror uh so i kind of as it came and went and then once the american remakes happened that really did turn it sour for me which is obviously really simplistic and and mm. kind of shouldn't have done that but uh i guess i was we did was sort of um, naive it did sort of rob it of its power a bit didn't it it became reduced yeah. to a series of tropes and yeah. you could more or less predict what was going to happen in these films, and yeah, it would... and the and the, Ameri- and the American remakes would always uh, discard that sort of uh, almost fantastical element for we need to we need to make this based in reality. I remember when we watched um, together, we watched the American remake of The Ring, Devlin, yes. and even though I don't think it's a terrible movie, the moment that brian cox electrocutes himself in a bath i couldn't help but laugh <laughs> so it, you know it, it's brian this is cox. not the science uh, superstar <laughs> yeah uh, <Brian laughs> no 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 this is, brian this cox. is this is brian cox uh robert not of McKee. Ream, no. no no robert robert mckee an adaptation <laughs> or the brian cox uh from uh braveheart who <laughs> You know, will yeah. teach you to use your noggin before he teaches you to use the sword. So it was just one of those things that, where in the Japanese uh, ring they play it very straight, but there's clearly a, a sort of fantastical supernatural 
element. Whereas in the American one, they they try and have to, they feel like they've got to justify everything with yeah. um, something that's like, oh, there's a reason why this happens. Yeah, it's because it's, it's the was... thing that we talk about on a lot of these films, which is uh, the the idea of rules. Yes, um, rules, and exactly. American horror cinema is obsessed with there being rules, and and sometimes that's to the benefit of these films, and sometimes, especially if they're adapting another property, it's sort of it just sort of lessens the mystery and it, it, it lessens the impact of it. Um, and, and, and this film has rules in itself, or it's certainly playing around with uh, certain rules, or I think it is. And mm. again, we'll, we'll get into it as we discuss, but there's certainly some drama, romantic comedy stuff where I think uh, Nikkei is, is definitely playing around with those, those rules, those conventions. I will say uh, um, for for a greater impact later on in the film. I'm very surprised that nobody put. I, I'm sure the rights were probably optioned for a remake immediately, and I'm very surprised that nobody ever went out and made it. Yeah, the Wikipedia says I think around 2014 something was in development or verging on production, but I don't think anything ever happened. And that's quite late. Well, that's I, like 15 years after it came out, considering the the big yeah. sort of J-horror remake boom was more, what, 2003 through 2007 or 8. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and even actually, even considering as well that this film, again, unfairly, I think, gets lumped into the torture porn yeah. category for horror film because of that ending. And... And that was what, 2004, Yeah, so um, again, you would have thought, okay, you'd maybe remake it then. Um, but also now looking at the Me Too movement and where we're at with regards to uh, heroines, and, and actually, yeah, maybe Audition is, is ripe for a remake now, but I don't know uh, how you, whether it would get neutered or watered down or uh, again, very similar to the American Ring or the American Grudge, which just ended up being uh, a pale comparison uh, to its original. Oh, very quickly, worst American remake of an Asian horror film. Uh, the first one I saw was uh, The Grudge. Yeah, the, I, I saw the American Grudge before I saw the uh, Japanese Grudge, which was uh, it worked better in a way because I really appreciated the original. Mm. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'll go with The Eye. Oh, with uh, oh, wow. Jessica Alba because yeah. it is dreadful. Um, so yeah, I'll go with that one. But it would, at that point, they'd almost become Stephen King like. It's a it's a haunted eyeball. It's a haunted cell phone. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go with the eye. Yeah. I would have to say, um, uh, Kim Ji Woon's A Tale of Two Sisters is probably my favorite film from that era of that part of the world, uh, the the South Korean horror movie. And the remake yeah. of that is one of the worst things I've ever sat through. Matt, would you give us a synopsis for Audition? Uh, when Japanese widower Oyama's son pesters him about remarrying, he confides in his mildly misogynistic mate, an old school film producer who devises a playfully duplicitous ruse to snare the special lady of Oyama's dreams by holding auditions for an almost certainly not upcoming film production. Oyama is immediately smitten by the seemingly vulnerable actress Asami, connecting through their shared understanding of the acceptance of death. Refusing to heed warnings and despite some inconsistencies in Asami's references, Oyama locks in and opts to pursue her as a potential bride. Meanwhile, Asami appears to wait alone for four days by her telephone for Oyama's call. A mysterious sack lying in the center of the room suddenly moves. Through a series of dates, the tale unfolds and the two invest in one another further. 
Oyama eventually pledges his love to Asami and vows to love only her. But as their relationship becomes physical, she suddenly disappears. Oyama tries in vain to track her down at her former ballet school run by the prosthetic-footed, all-round dressing gown creep, Mr. Shimada. He, it is revealed the bar where Asami claimed to work has been closed following the murder and dismemberment of the owner. Upon discovering a photo of Oyama's wife at his house, the enraged Asami spikes his whiskey. We discover the bag contains the mutilated record producer Asami initially lied about on her resume. He's footless, tongueless, one earless, and has been relieved of his three fingers. He crawls out like a dog and laps up a delicious bowl of Asami's puke from a dish. Oyama's sanity unravels, bringing his darkest fears and guilt-laden visions to the fore spiraling into a murky blend of surreal, nightmarish fantasy and cruel, cold reality. We discover who was really auditioning who. Asami's abuse-laden past at the hands of cruel male figures returns to haunt Oyama, and in a final climactic torture sequence to rival all others, Asami gives Oyama a date night he won't be walking away from in a hurry. In this genre-switching, bloke-bagging, needle-pushing, foot-chopping, romantic horror-turned-torture fable for the Tinder generation, hell truly hath no fury like a woman auditioned. Wow. Very good, Matt. Yep. <laughs> Happy with that? Oh, I tried. Thank you. Happy with that? Yeah. Now go and see the film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, i tell you what. The first thing I want to get into, um, and partly down to the fact that, one, uh, Devlin, you lived in Japan for over a year, and Matt, you live in South Korea, Asia. Japanese gender politics, because one of the big, big themes in this film is that dynamic and how it plays. And one of the scenes in particular that really highlighted it for me was when he's when uh, Aoyama and his you said mate because I've also forgotten the character's name. Um, you know, creepy producer type. We'll call him like the Harvey Weinstein of this film, I suppose. Uh, Yoshikawa. Uh, Yoshikawa, thank you very much. Yoshikawa. Yoshikawa, thank you. Um, when they're in the bar and they hear the um, the female, uh, the Japanese women in, in the corner uh, giggling away and they're kind of almost disgust and revulsion mm. as to the fact that they are now in their environment and they are, they are now, they can now be heard. Yeah. Uh, and, and they are yeah. just these older men that are sort of criticizing this new generation of uh, of women in Japan. What are what are the gender politics in in Asia? Are they similar to the West? How do they differ? I think what well, Japan is still a, a very patriarchal society. Um, you don't want to make too sweeping a generalization about this, uh, but in terms of um, the gender roles in the workplace and the gender roles for career development. And um, generally speaking, it's still uh, predicated on the idea that the, the man will go out and he is the, the breadwinner of the family and the woman will work only really in order to find a partner. This is again, massive sweeping generalizations. And that when it comes down to, um, looking after the home and, and looking after the children. That's very much woman's work. Um, but male working hours are extremely long and extremely difficult. And there is a heavy expectation that you will be there beyond your working hours uh, to go out for, you know, work socializing as well. So um, 
men don't spend much time at home in general. I know Matt, we've we've discussed before um, the the slightly disturbing elements too of uh, uh, idol culture. Um, yeah, which uh, is well, there's the there's the gravia mm. models and the the idol culture in Japan, and that all relies on uh, these girls uh, satisfying their uh, male fandom. And uh, the people who buy their tickets and their CDs and things like that, they, they're completely at the mercy of that fan base, which is predominantly male. And they, uh, they can't disclose anything uh, personal. Uh, they can't talk about sexual relationships. Uh, they can't have open relationships with anyone. Um, and if there are any harassment allegations or uh, anything like that, it's really damaging to their careers and it can actually come back and, and bite them. I just found, uh, um, I was referred to it by my girlfriend who's Korean, who knows much more about Japanese culture than me. Uh, there's a high profile case, the Shiori Ito case. She was allegedly raped by a prominent journalist and biographer. And, uh, because she came out and spoke about it, she was, um, issued with death threats. And, uh, in a video I just saw, she said that for 110 years in Japan, rape was punishable by three years in prison and theft was punishable by five. And she really eloquently put it that objects were more valuable than women for such a long time. But thankfully it's changed recently. And uh, although sexual harassment is, isn't a criminal offense, um, you know, things appear mm. to be changing. Yeah. There's a, there's now, um, I remember there, there being um, a, a movement when I was living out there that, um, it was to sort of protect, and this is kind of disturbing. It was to protect uh, extremely young women and schoolgirls from from being um, harassed on public transport. Um, there's mm-hmm. uh, there's a word you have to shout. It's uh, chikan, which means groper or pervert. Wow! And uh, people were having to be educated in order to say that they had to speak up if this happens, because it, apparently it would just happen yeah. to everyone virtually virtually every woman or girl has at some point been harassed on on public transport well we've had a problem here with the the upskirt Mm. photography uh the the cameras all have their their shutter clicks um uh they are they're forced to make a sound on their cell phones so if anyone is taking pictures in public um you can actually hear the camera go off i'm not sure what it's like in england but when i was back in in the uk you could uh, take yeah. off the, Is that the same shutter. in Japan. Actually, yeah, you, you sound, but you have to. Yeah. You have to have the the sound audible. It's it's sort of preset. It's become such a huge problem, and there's a we have uh, the K-pop culture here, and the the K-pop girls are under an incredible amount of stress to be pure and uh, to not be involved in any kind of scandal or you know drug scandals would end someone. Basically, we've had suicides because of uh, smoking marijuana and getting caught and. Uh, a lad from a, a K- K-pop band killed himself uh, partly mm-hmm. because of that, I think. And what happened to him after he was uh, kind of disgraced by it? Um, yeah, the idol culture mm-hmm. is kind of still. And quite if, if you ever go to uh, Akihabara in Tokyo, you can go to the AKB48 Cafe, which AKB48 is uh, an enormous girl band, enormous in both senses. One in that they mm-hmm. are uh, probably the most successful musical act in, in Japan at the moment. And also because there are, as the name would suggest, 48 members 
but that's 48 members just wow. just in the primary wow. band there are also regional syndicates scattered throughout other parts of japan but wow. uh that wow i thought we had a lot the, the girl band twice has nine yeah. nine members i think and i always thought that was too much but 48 wow, and if you go to the cafe uh, or if you walk past yeah. the cafe, you can see the queues waiting to get into it. And the cafe is just, you know, they have a um, they have their own theater. They perform twice a day in the theater in the back. Um, the cafe in the front sells um, items related to the, the band. And there's videos of their music playing throughout. And you'll see a largely male and largely middle-aged uh, clientele waiting to get in. And they will wear laminated uh, badges featuring their favorite member. Well, I suppose pulling it into the film again, because with with that information, of which I didn't know any of that, it's quite overt, isn't it? What Mike is at least, even if he's not trying to, uh, even if he hasn't got a side, he's he's showing us uh, a, a dynamic within Japanese culture that is a thing. So Oyama is a widower. We see him right at the beginning. Our sympathies are immediately with him because he seems like a, a very loving father and, a, and a, he seemed to really love and despair at the loss of his wife but he's an older gentleman i don't think they ever say how old he is but i had him down at a, probably around mid 40s maybe yeah just maybe. based I, on the age i don't of, know about uh, you his son of son yeah that's kind of where i had him at and and then asami is early 20s i'm uh, I think yeah, they say again, I don't think we uh, he he says she's twenty four. Yeah, twenty four. Yeah, twenty four. Yeah. Yeah. So immediately that would alarm bells would ring as as far as okay, what are your intentions here? Because that seems like quite an age gap. There's no judgment from my part, but ordinarily you would look at that and think, okay, that's quite a big a big age gap. Uh, but I suppose from what you're telling me in Japan, this is something that what is not. Not it's been normalized, but it's something that's almost what celebrated or it's, it's an idealized. Uh, you would, yeah, you would imagine that, yeah, um, an, an older male would probably idealize the idea of having a younger partner, especially if he was remarrying. Mike frames this, and you talked about it before, Matt, when it comes down to the structure of the film. Mike is subverting certain genre norms. Because for the first hour, as we mentioned when we were when we were younger, we watched this. It's slightly mundane, almost like a yeah. drama. People have described it as a rom com. I certainly didn't find any elements uh, funny, but the the dynamic Ugh. is like a rom com because when Ayama decides, right, I'm going to search out for I, I, my son has told me I need to. I, I look I look worn out. I should find another wife. The pretense of the audition, ordinarily in certainly Western cinema, would be that this is the setup for hilarity to ensue. Uh, and I, I, I wrote down a load of romantic comedies, of which I'm some of them like huge fan of. But you have mm. like ten things I hate about you, uh, Aladdin. You know the the upcoming one. It would be interesting to see if they do it again, where the pauper pretends to be the prince. Yeah, yeah. Gets the girl and says, "Oh, I'm actually a pauper." She gets angry, but then she's like, "Oh, he's only a pauper. I love you." Uh, so those kind of things happen all the time in certainly Western cinema. Is that the same for Asian cinema, or am I just uh, you know is that too broader a question? I think that kind of contrivance would yeah that's that's probably pretty pretty well across the board. That would be something that would come up in. As you say, a whole bunch of films. It's um, 
it's a cornerstone of the romantic comedy genre. Maybe that's the reason why people say that it is, you know, somewhat of a, a subversion of that. Even though I don't think the presentation is is anything like that. It's it's not jocular. It's it's more presented as if it's like um you know like a yeah a drama movie. A tender, yeah, a tender, a tender yeah. love story. Because the the most egregious case for it was I don't know if you've seen it, but have you ever seen Mick G's This Means War <laughs> with? No. I, well, okay. Shamefully, I have, and uh, my God, is that the worst case of false pretenses turning into? You know what? You were creepy. Definitely lied to me a million times, but hey ho, and you definitely objectified me. But you know what? You're a really cool guy. I love you. In the end, that is probably the worst case for this one. Well, it's it seems like it it seems like it could be cut into one of those YouTube um, when you were talking about the romantic comedy element. Uh, it could be recut into the romantic comedy version. You know, like when you see it done with The Shining and oh, uh, yeah, several yeah. other films on YouTube. That that first hour and however long could be really could be made to look like yeah. a completely different film. But one of the things that uh, I think Mike does really well in that opening hour. To, to sort of tell us that that's what he's doing, or certainly in my opinion, that's what he's doing, is the way that he shoots it. Because everything in that opening hospital scene, we have soft focus, like amazingly mm. soft focus. We've got these long, long sort of unobtrusive shots. And the music that's playing is tender, loving. And like you say, it feels like a full-blown drama. There doesn't, there's no, there's no hint right at the beginning that we are gonna, we're going to experience a quote-unquote horror film or any element of horror later down the line i mean what what did you think of just the shooting style that he chooses certainly in the first act and a half well i like the extended uh takes you know it, whenever i see a film like that it suggests that when they're cutting they're cutting for a, a reason they're not just cutting for the sake of coverage he's making a decision to to make a cut and it, it's meaningful and the only time in the film where i felt like that went completely off the rails is where uh, Oyama and the producer have uh, kind of a heated encounter uh, because uh, I think he feels shame because he's been uh, tricked by this girl. After he sleeps with Asami, she disappears, and it's kind of like a, an I told you so moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, the cutting becomes very uh, fervent, kind of uh, all over the place. And it almost it, it mm. feels clumsy. But uh, it, it, when you put that against the the long uh, intentional takes uh you can only uh, assume that that Mike is doing this uh, intentionally yeah because if i remember that's the first time that the camera comes off a tripod it, it goes it goes handheld doesn't it as it follows him through into the um yeah. almost like a briefing room but even the handheld feels sloppy because it's all over the place uh, it doesn't it, hmm. there's no attempt to make it uh smooth or like a steady cam shot it's yeah purposely uh, there's a quote wobbly. from the uh there's a commentary uh with uh Mike and uh i think the screenwriter uh not the original hmm. author of the book but the the screenwriter and he refers to the dp i forget the dp's name chris you probably got it there but the uh the D, the dp is more interested in um reality and keeping things simple than he is pretty pictures that was one of the quotes from Mike, and he's worked together with him a few times and interestingly enough the the dop lost both of his parents when he was very young and doesn't like to discuss it too much and i think Mike chose him partly because of um you know the the plot points in this film and he thought maybe he could lend to that 
a personal element to the photography. With that one scene coming off the tripod and going handheld, if you wanted to go with like the rule book, like the conventions on how to shoot these sequences, I guess that is the one time when you would actually do it because it's one of the few times that there's actually open conflict in the film or certainly up until that point. But he also feels like he was warned, doesn't he? Between the two of them, he feels like he was... uh, There's a scene between the two of them when they're playing golf and he's chucking golf balls around between that and uh, uh, between the two of them. And he's still got the power in that scene. He's saying, I can handle it. Even if she's not right for me, it's something I can can handle. And then he kind of throws it back in his face, his friend. And I think he feels an element of shame because of it, maybe. Well, there's a few, like, uh, the first time he takes um, Asami out when they're sitting at the uh, dinner table together, that shot um, is from her perspective from across the table, looking at him. And we sit with that shot for uh, a really long time. I remember sitting and and just while watching it, it felt almost a little uncomfortable. The amount of time that we're sort of studying his face from her perspective. Is this on the first date that they go on together? The first meeting? Yeah. The very first meeting um, in the kind of nice sunlit, Restaurant. I have an interesting tri- a bit of trivia from the book on that one. Uh, okay. We tried to read the book here and get through it. In in that scene in the book, there is a a young man in a wheelchair who appears. This doesn't happen in the film, but in the book, a young man in a wheelchair appears and recognizes Asami, and he goes into uh, uh, just a, a freak out and uh, recognizes her. He goes into a panic and tries to escape the the restaurant that they're in and the the implication in the book is that he may have been another one of her victims from from earlier on it doesn't say that his uh, any references to his feet specifically other than that he's in the wheelchair but the the implication is there and uh, we think it was cut from the film because of uh, uh, it would have made it too obvious it would have given away too much too soon perhaps. right well it's interesting you say that matt because um with the film is that they chose a different script uh screenwriter to do the, the mm. screenplay for the film which i thought was very very yeah. interesting and i'm i'm normally a uh, a big sort of fan of doing that because what a film that comes out a year later american psycho directed by mary harron um the the novel most people know american psycho uh brett easton ellis uh, i've read it several times i love the book and then i watched the film and i love the film as well and probably a future episode i'd imagine but one of the things that I love is the fact that they are two different mediums, two different interpretations. And I don't think you could shoot the book as is and make an entertaining film. Mm. I've not read the book for audition, mm. but I've seen reviews from from quite prominent Asian cinema critics that have said that have stated that one of the problems with audition, the film, is that it, that it's a really loose translation of the book. But uh, well, that's the positive of it, really. It, the book feels like a seed of an idea that Mike has has taken, and uh, I think uh, Mike made seven films in 1999. <laughs> that sounds really it sounds wrong, but I I read that he made seven. I think seven, and this is just one of them. So he's he's got these things uh, developing all the time. I guess that's the only way you can get so many done, and they. Uh, I think he just saw a seed of an idea that he felt he could bring something to. And the wildness of the, the conclusion is it's all there in the book. But um, I think Mike elevated it, really. I, I think if they'd made it word for word, like you say, uh, I don't think it would be considered a masterpiece by, by any stretch. Should we talk about the, uh, the audition scene? 
and just the way that the um, Mike chooses to to portray it, because it's it's probably I said there's no real comedy within the film. So if you were to say it's a rom com for the first hour, not quite. But that audition scene does seem playful, mm. and in a way, even though it's so such a dastardly deed, because of the the music and there's a couple of lines, uh, but the judgment that the uh, the men are passing on these women that they are auditioning to be Aoyama's mm. wife is done in such a fun and playful way. It almost um, waters down how nefarious it it's, really is. It's sort of trying to implicate uh, the audience by pulling you along with it, putting this, you know, this slightly absurd light jazz over it and having these quick cuts and showing the the women kind of doing occasionally ridiculous things or um there's the the shot in the middle which feels really mean-spirited where the a woman introduces herself and the camera cuts to a completely deadpan and it's just that she's yeah. not a conventionally attractive woman and that's a punchline yeah 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 they don't even ask her a question no they don't even you know pose anything to her and the other the two things that took me back was the nudity there and the that they were getting the the girls to stand up and walk around that's when it, it went from a playful scene that like you said everyone was in on and we're kind of having a fun time watching it, even though it's a, a duplicitous kind of thing to do. But as soon as it, it starts to, to get serious, you know, you can feel the sting of it a little. How did you feel about the the concept of making a uh, an audition for a film that may not take place? Did you feel, uh, how immoral did you feel it was? And was it clear to you that it was a film that wasn't going to be made or was it ever in danger of being made? I don't think it's ever going to get made, personally. Mm. But what I do find interesting, and this is 99, so we're, we're pre-Me Too and the Harvey Weinstein scandal and all these other celebrities that have kind of, uh, or actors and filmmakers that have come out and uh, have been sort of outed for their behavior in the past. But what I find so kind of topical is the idea that it's, a, it's an audition for a film. Yeah. Uh, I just think, I think now in 2019, that really does resonate quite hard. And maybe in 99, it wouldn't have done. I would have just seen it as, because we're now into like X Factor, Britain's Got Talent, all these kind of shows that basically objectify people for our entertainment. And that's kind of how I felt about it in the film now, watching it in 2019 was, you know what? This is always wrong. Like, because we've, we've done it. We've made films, right? So we've, we've, cast actors and we've auditioned them and i remember um i remember thinking like oh yeah yeah it's just uh you know they come in they read a line you go oh he's terrible or yeah that's the one and i never even thought about how how that actually reflects on me and how i'm just passing judgment on someone for for what two minutes ask a couple of questions and then nay mm. not the not the person i don't know how, how did you feel about it because i it, it really did Pull, pull well, a mirror up to me. I've got a list of questions here that they asked. Uh, I've got. They're asking about suicide. Yeah, yeah, There's a girl she's... talking about suicide in a psychiatric hospital she's visited. Uh, we've got, uh, what does your father do? Which is quite interesting. Uh, <laughs> we've got, um, have you ever had loveless sex? Uh, who's your favorite character? Um, have you ever been involved in the sex industry? What's your favorite Tarkovsky movie? <laughs> um, uh, and then there's a bit that Chris mentioned about the for want of a better word, unattractive lady that they don't even bother to ask a question to. And, uh, you know, the, the whole thing, it, it felt playful until the the nudity and getting them to walk around for me and, and being mean to that lady intentionally. 
but so yeah, there's there's certainly a, an intentional ruse going on, and uh, not to say that they deserve everything that happens to them in the movie, but they're certainly playing with fire at this point. Well, and and the really interesting thing with that is that as I said before, our sympathies are really with A. Armour. I think the actor does a phenomenal job because he's got this almost puppy doe eye look the whole time throughout the film. He's the Japanese <laughs> Bill Hicks. <laughs> <in a> way, <laughs> oh, he, he, but he, he really has, hasn't he? He, um, he seems we so had pure. That really, uh, in, in we his had a really interesting scene slightly earlier to, to this when he's leaving his, uh, his office. I think this is just before he goes to meet Yoshikawa when he's, uh, he's leaving his office and the, um, I assume it's his assistant or co-worker corners him next to the lift and tells him that um, she's, uh, she's engaged to be married. Mm-hmm. And she's an incredible casting because she just looks distraught. Like, well, I don't know if she is getting married, right? She, I think maybe that could be a, a, a something to lead him uh, to feel any kind of jealousy or any or give away his feelings towards her because she appears later mm. in that really unusual fantasy at the end. It's yeah, it's it's an interesting one because he he does when he's when he gets into the lift, you know, you can see that he's he's visibly moved. He has tears welling in his eyes so so clearly he he does care but for whatever reason can't say it i think um it's another undercurrent of the film and a thing that comes up in in japanese cinema as well like uh loneliness like loneliness as a subject um mm-hmm. like uh the yeah. son says you look lonely i think that's one of the things he um, says the 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 guy that he's editing alongside you know, the guy said, uh, everybody in Japan is lonely, aren't you? But that, but that subplot, Devlin, informs us so much about yeah. his character. Because, as I said, when I was younger, I think I had the same opinion as these, um, the, the slightly literal interpretations of the film, which is, you know, she's just a crazy. She's just a wrong one, And he was just unlucky. But actually, you watch it again, and you know what? He is, there are shades of gray because with that secretary, they, in the fantasy, she later says, you know, we had sex together. I thought it was going to go somewhere. He does dismiss her. So when he says, I'm lonely, I need to find a wife. There's one right there for you, right in front of you. Someone who knows you intimately, works with you day in, day out. And he chooses Mm. not to pursue that. Instead, he's happy. Like I said, it's weird because in the film, it goes to great lengths to to make him seem like he's almost conflicted about it. You know, he turns the picture yeah. of his wife when he's going through, and she CV. reappears to him, in, um, in, and then in various more than once you see little flashes exactly, of her which in dreams, which is part of the a part of the warning, and then, but with that, he does not pursue the secretary, and then another one with subplots is the son's girlfriend which again informs you of, of what A. Yama really is seeking. Uh, they talk about it, don't they, in the film about, you know, you want yeah. someone obedient. You want someone who, um, a good a good wife, uh, as opposed to a bad wife, which is when they refer to it in the audition as like, oh no, you don't oh, want an actual sad, actress. Yeah. You don't want someone who's any good. They're too sad. They're, they're, you, you don't want one of those. You want someone who isn't an actor. A funny old thing, he picks someone who's probably the best actor in the bunch. Um, but that yeah. subplot with the son and the girlfriend, when uh, when he comes back and she realizes, oh, um, you know, oh, we ate your dinner. Well, I'll make you something right now because he's just about to leave, isn't he? Yeah. And walk Gangu, and and he says, no, 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 no. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. He walks away and he gives his son a thumbs up, 
like yep yeah she's a good one and if that doesn't inform you about what he actually thinks as opposed to what we are seeing mm. i think it's i think it's i think that's geared good. towards her it's it's geared towards her um being beautiful too he thinks that she's a pretty girl and later when there's a scene where he goes to the boy's bedroom and uh picks up a dinosaur uh, we haven't talked about the dinosaurs yet, but there's a whole kind of thing there, the visual theme with the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. He picks up the, the Triceratops, mm-hmm. which is one of the first things we see in the movie. It's the first shot of the papier-mâché um, model that the, the son has made to show the mum, but uh, he's walking through the hospital corridor and she dies before he can give it to her or show it to her. So there's this theme of dinosaurs that connects the boy's relationship with his mum. And uh, there's a scene in the bedroom where Oyama comes in and picks up a triceratops and he's talking about how I chose a beautiful one and you chose a beautiful one too. Yeah, it's um, kind of it's, it's this idea of like, I don't know, is ideation a word or idealizing these these women, um, not wanting to confront the, the realities of, of mm. the woman as a whole person. The second date that uh, Aoyama and Asami go on where they're drinking the the glasses of beer in the cafe and he asks about her family and he says uh, uh how are your family mm-hmm. and the and the first time they go on that date together she says oh they're fine they moved into a small house in another prefecture um we don't fight we don't we're not very close but we don't fight just normal i guess um the way that scene is shot it's quite short but it's um it's it's another time when because the editing is so languid in other places or so precise there are some strange jump cuts. There's a jump cut on um, on Aoyama's face halfway through a sentence. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and as the scene progresses, it's quite a short scene. It's probably only mm-hmm. 90 seconds long. But um, from an opening scene where the cafe is completely full of people behind them and there's cars passing the window, um, by the time that scene finishes, we cut to a very, a very wide shot from above and there's literally no one in the cafe around them. Um, when we see that exact scene again uh, during the sort of extended montage sequence towards the end of the film, and she starts detailing, uh, very graphically detailing the abuse she suffered as a child, uh, that scene is um, kind of, they make more of a point to make sure that the surroundings are uh, consistent. So, the, the extras sitting behind them sit behind them for the whole time. The shots are much longer. Uh, you can hear the passing traffic a lot more, so you get more of a kind of ambient sound. I don't know whether there's an implication there that earlier on he was so starry-eyed that he was intentionally blocking out things that she would say that would contradict his idea of a, a, a perfect and beautiful new wife. And then it's only later that he sort of He's confronted with the reality that that this is a person who's gone through some terrible stuff and is very damaged, mm-hmm. and that he maybe intentionally um, ignored it. Because he even says, when she starts talking about the abuse she suffered, he says, "Don't talk about it if it's painful." He's, he's shuffling around. He's uh, he's staring down at his hands. He basically doesn't want to deal with this. I th- I just I found that really quite interesting, and again, quite resonant. This idea that you might intentionally try and shut off someone else's pain because it's inconvenient for you at the time. Well, we noticed the the differences in those scenes. They mm. the, the dialogue is different. Every time it flashes back, the, the things that she tells him are, are completely different and more uh, more honest 
uh, I thought, and I subscribe to the idea that she that he has those rose tinted glasses that you're talking about, and uh, he's just shutting out certain things that later come into his realization. Uh, I think when he uh, when he collapses to the ground later in the uh, towards the end, uh, and all of those things come come flooding back to him. Well, I'm really glad you uh, you both mentioned it because it plays into something else that I thought was really topical, which is dating. Personal question, ever used uh, a Tinder or a Plenty of Fish or any of these other dating websites, Match, eHarmony, et cetera? Well, that was, a, that was one thing that came up in, in my mind because I, I, I had been single for a long time and I had, I'd never thought to, to use it. I, for some reason, I have some kind of an issue with it, but it must be a subconscious one. I just feel like I'm, I'm just not that kind of character it just doesn't fit me i don't really frown upon it because you know, there's two parties involved there's nothing really wrong with it you can use the internet in that way but it just wasn't for me personally um i i would say that uh, i'd uh have had uh now a, a three-year relationship which started on tinder not not something honestly the the it was the first person that i i well, the second person i spoke to on tinder though and and it wasn't something that i went into it expecting um relationships or whatever kind of hookups that the kids the kids are down for <laughs> i didn't slide into anyone's dms or anything it was it was literally a case of i was living in a a, a big city um and just thought this would be a good way to sort of connect with people well there's even a part where he actually physically swipes left with the CVs when he's looking at them, he swipes left. And then uh, the other cool thing in that scene, just while we're there is that he, it's very different to the book. The book is solely based upon the essays of the female applicants. And he chooses Asami's based on her uh, understanding of death. And he's connecting to her stories about the ballet. And, but in, in the film, he spills coffee uh, on the, resume and uh, pulls it out and that's how he finds her i thought that was cool because it's this little mistake this little error that leads to the biggest mistake of his life yes it's um and it is also if you know it's that kind of romance trope of you know i was meant to be yeah serendipitous if this were a different film that would just yeah because the music kind of if i remember there's a little music sting right there's a little piano sting when he starts to when he sees her face and it's um Mm -hmm. You get that, uh, you know, that uh-huh. that purely cinematic kind of. It's a meet cute, but not because they're not meeting in the same space. But um, it's yeah, it's something else I noticed was uh, Aoyama is clearly uh, uncomfortable with this idea, this Tinder idea of being set up because he, or it, it seems like he uh, wants it to be on his terms. Uh, the girl that he chooses is Asami, but he chooses the uh, resume. And before she comes into the audition and actually sits down, he sees her in the waiting area. Mm. We just see her from the back. So I, I think he's he's uncomfortable with the idea of this kind of setup, and he's trying to ke- take uh, control himself. Maybe he's in denial a little bit about how much is being set up. But I think, Matt, that just plays into the idea of what we were talking about earlier, about him filling in the gaps and rose-tinted glasses. So he... And and this plays yeah. into how sort of modern dating works now. Like you have these apps where people don't really want to disclose uh, some of their sort of darker 
secrets or things that they just don't want to disclose. You know, how many, so I used them in the past. Uh, I don't anymore because I'm I've now in a relationship, but, you know, people take strategic pictures and, um, and try and conceal what they would class as, as things that they don't want to show. You know, sometimes it's physical, sometimes people lie about their jobs, etc. And this is kind of what Asami does. You know, she lies about her whole CV is just complete fabrication. Um, none of the none of it mm-hmm. checks out. But Aoyama has already decided this is the one. And he is filling in the blanks, isn't he? He's like, well, I've read this essay about the ballet and I really connect to it. So, and she's beautiful. And then when he meets her, even though the friend knows there's like there's something wrong with her. There's there's just something I get a bad feeling. But A Armor, he's like, No, I think I'll be able to do something with this one. That's what I got from it. It, it, it was really strange how Yeah, he's idealizing yeah, big her big time. And uh and I thought that was quite again sort of really does resonate today because I think that's kind of what happens on when we date. Forget about just uh dating apps like i've been on dates before where after one day i've thought you know what really i really really like this person and then you go on two three dates and you realize you know what what was i thinking like we do not even get on but you do create this ideal in your mind and you just sort of discount the stuff that you think oh you don't like american football that's okay i'll i'll you know <laughs> I'll let that one slide or, um, you know, well, that question about Tarkovsky, you know, it would be a case of mm. saying, you know, do you like Mrs. Brown's boys? And if she said yes, that would be a problem. Mm. But <laughs> that's it. But if she was, if yeah. she was, you know, dropped get gorgeous and I was like all in, I would just say, you know what? Maybe I can get on board with Mrs. Brown's boys. <laughs> Maybe I've judged it too harsh. <laughs> Maybe it is just a delightful rum. <laughs> <laughs> The look of Asami in the audition scene was more aspiring bride than aspiring actress. I thought she was kind of viewed from the back and uh, her hair even looks like a a veil and she's dressed entirely in white and her head is bowed and uh, she's the only one who doesn't seem to be auditioning as an actress. She's auditioning as as a bride. You know, she's pure white in there and she's also pure white in the, uh, in the blue Mm. room when she, Uh, undresses Uh, and her clothes are quite interesting she's always wearing white underneath uh, but on the two dates that they go on the first date she wears a blue jacket uh, kind of patterned blue jacket and then she wears a red jacket and uh, but there's always this this uh, pure white underneath well I think um, uh, the Mm. use of white and especially the white and the long black hair that kind of very stereotypical image that we have of J-horror comes from uh, kind of classical um, kaidan or ghost stories and horror tales. And um, there was an interesting one that a lot of times Japanese literature especially tends to uh, have a lot of allusions to other types of literature. It's all very um, metatextual, even sort of back in the uh, 16th, 17th century. Mm. Um, And I might be reading too much into it, but I, I would assume just with, uh, a writer like Ryu Murakami, uh, Murakami, he probably does know what he's doing. And uh, Aoyama, as a character name, is uh, the the name of a character in an old uh, kaidan shu called uh, Bansho uh, Sarashiki, which is the story of... Um, uh, it's one of the first appearances of what they call the Yurei, 
the um uh the avenging spirit of a wronged woman and there mm. are later um a lot of the yukioe or the ink uh, the woodblock artists when they would render these uh, these characters that's how they would draw them the long dark hair uh, the white robes the reason being that um white robes are uh, actually funeral robes and in uh, in sort of classical japanese society women would always wear their hair up until um until burial so the use of the long hair hanging down is indicative of uh, of of an avenging ghost or spirit so just yeah almost coming coming to haunt <laughs> a yama and yeah almost like the grim reaper i guess yeah. a japanese version of uh, the so grim even reaper. though i mean usually it would be it would be more direct so in uh, the story of um the story where aoyama is is a character is is also the story of okiku she is the the avenging ghost um there are a few different versions of it but once they got into like the meiji restoration sort of later part of the 19th century you started getting um a lot of these old ghost tales would be mixed up with almost like erotic stories in a, a genre they called eroguro erotic grotesque um throughout the 70s um sort of late 60s and through the 70s there was a a lot of lower budget kind of the, the first seeds of the japanese exploitation movie scene uh companies like toei and nikatsu would release all of these these films which are set um back in the sort of uh shogunate era and yeah there was lots of tales of wronged women there was a lot of uh, uh quite gory violence um uh sexually explicit scenes all kind of mixed up together so um, i i get i think later on when you see her exacting this horrific revenge i sort of i tied it back into that tradition and i think the the visage that she carries especially the shot where you see her um uh i think it's around the 45 minute mark you know the the second time that um uh, aoyama phones her and you see the sack twitch yep. in the background. Yeah. The shot mm-hmm. is just of the side of her head, uh-huh. right? With like, it's just the hair hanging down. This has this low rumble and there's a, a strange, her, her bo- the bone in her neck is kind of. Yeah. And it's kind of foreshadowing. And then when she too. raises her head really slowly, you've just got that like, that mm-hmm. kind of creepy smile just glimpsed underneath the hair and stuff. Well, that's great because uh, Mike said that this, isn't really a horror film in his mind. He considers the movies like uh, Kuroneko uh, that we referred to earlier as uh, these true horror ghost stories, usually about a, a vengeful uh, woman getting revenge for something. But he uh, he considers uh, Audition to be a psychological suspense, okay. as he called it. Uh, and he, considers, he doesn't consider anything that isn't supernatural uh, a horror film. So that's interesting that you've tied it into to that but that i guess that comes from the source the source novel yeah well well what do you guys think then what do you think is this a is this a horror film or are you with mike and say it's a psychological thriller i can't go against mike really because he's kind of he's really come out and and laid it on the line so i'm going to agree with him i i don't it has horror tropes mm. i guess but this it's it was like when you tried to pin down silence of the lambs it was no, very difficult yeah, but um 
Yeah, this one, this one too is a tricky one, but I'll go with Mikael. I'll go with psychological suspense. He must know. Certainly structurally, there's there's something to be said for that in that, because um, as we've said, the way this film used to get sold on like, oh, it's a, it's an hour and 20 minutes of a romantic comedy or a drama followed by 10 minutes of extreme gore, which just doesn't really stand up to scrutiny because basically the the first and second time we see Asami on screen, we know that there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the sack twitching moment happens less than halfway through the film. So the, the sense of growing unease is there almost from the first time we see her. But um, certainly the way Aoyama goes through the plot, you see him um, set the plot in motion by agreeing to the audition. You see him pursuing Asami. Um, and then once she disappears after the blue room um it's like he has to you know cross that threshold into the you know the 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 underworld or the netherworld or whatever it's the same thing that we had with um uh, silence of the lambs the way uh, clarice starling has to step pretty much literally into hell in order to um and he does the same when he pulls the boards off the door of the um shimada ballet school mm. And that scene is like tinted with that horrible acid yellow filter and a a film which up until now has looked very naturalistic suddenly just becomes colorful in a really grotesque way. And you mentioned it there, Devlin, Uh, you know, this this film, even now, it's a triumph in marketing because it is a it's essentially packaged as a horror film. Um, I, I tend to probably side with Mike as well Matt as far as there are there are horror elements in it the you know that are tapping into primal fears in this case the anxiety of uh, older generation of men towards this new generation of women but essentially he's if you look at his catalog he tends to make genre films and so he knows where he knows the sort of the playground he's playing in and uh it's really just been marketed as a horror film, marketed as a kind of torture porn precursor. But yeah, if you've actually watched the film, um, if you're going into it with that kind of bloodlust, then you are going to be bitterly, bitterly disappointed. He could be distancing himself from the other K horror, sorry, J horror of the time. And he, uh, even though the money came from uh, Korea for this one, I'm not entirely sure about the story, but uh, it has something to do with the ring. Uh, being imported as a horror film into Korea and Korea having a ban on Japanese cultural imports. They Korea and Japan have a very fractured relationship uh, and the uh, the idea of bringing in Japanese films for a commercial gain, uh, they didn't appreciate at all, so they put a ban on it and they decided that they wanted to make their own horror film with Korean money and that's where the uh, well, the first word you see when you watch audition right. is Korea. It's mm-hmm. on the screen as a, one of the first titles. And uh, the other the other Korean link was that um, maybe this is why Mikkei was asked to be involved in this project was um, because uh, his parents are Korean immigrants. Well, going back to um, Asami as a character, you know, we've talked about Aoyama and how some of the subplots inform us about him. Depiction of female psychopaths, uh, certainly in Western cinema. There's been many. I wrote down a few. Uh, single white female, uh, the hand that rocks the mm-hmm. cradle. Um, I mean, even something like Basic Instinct. But 
but the one that this one yeah, Glenn Close was my first one. Oh, Fatal right Attraction. There. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, it was a real trope in the nineties, wasn't it? It was. Um, it's certainly Americans in the nineties was was just littered with them. Absolutely. Not to the point where you ended up with even a parody of it was So I Married an Axe Murderer. And uh, and one of the ones that has got clear parallels to Audition is uh, is Misery. You know, Kathy Bates in Misery. Um, yeah. Because both of the characters have a similar way of ensuring that their victims are incapacitated. You know, Kathy Bates decides to uh, break uh, James Kahn's ankles. And in this, uh, Asami removes, removes the, the feet. Of, uh, of her victims. I guess one of the questions I had was how does uh, the characterizations of sort of female psychopaths, you know, you said it there, Devlin, within the early 90s, how does, how is audition comparable if, if, if even it is? Um, are, are there any differences, do we think, or, or does it fall into those tropes? Asami lets uh, Oyama come to her. Uh, there's this whole idea of who's actually being auditioned. Mm. So he, he is actually pursuing her and when after they have sex the she ghosts him completely she disappears and he's the one in pursuit of her but uh, i guess with some of those other films like fatal attraction and uh, basic instinct or maybe not basic instinct actually sharon stone is kind of being pursued by michael douglas well he he, he'll pursue every woman if he could on screen (laughs) right he's method I just found it interesting with audition that there's there's a there's an argument there's two schools of thoughts aren't there on this one is this a feminist film or is this a misogynist film that is trying to sort of highlight and explore male anxieties towards uh you know a new generation of of women uh, and and I know that Mike has distanced himself from the feminist argument and uh, and who are we as uh, as three three white men to uh, to to sort of bat for which side? But but yeah, I I I definitely got some feminist elements within this film. Well, I'm not sure feminists would really want to align themselves with with this. I'm not sure it, it does a lot for the cause. Um, the one thing that uh, I think it's Tom Mez, the uh, uh, the Mike biographer that is on one of the commentary tracks. Uh, he refers to the the owner of the Stonefish Bar. Uh, being female and the fact that uh, Asami killing her uh, along with the record producer that eventually goes into the bag um, you know means that she's taking female victims too so it is her her choice to to do these things motivated by a a feminist agenda Mm. it doesn't really seem so but on the other hand just just because she kills a woman doesn't mean that it's not a, a feminist agenda. So it's kind of a gray area. I guess it's to do with uh, post-structuralism. And in 2019, when you're looking at a film like Audition, it's going to be informed by the Me Too movement and everything that's going on at that time. So it does feel prescient. And uh, whether it's intentional or not, the, the there's always a social, an unavoidable social commentary there. But I didn't feel it was overtly feminist, but it could be interpreted in that way and uh, I don't know if uh, Asami has an ideological agenda it seems to me like she's just reliving her abuse and reframing it and she's even using those two instruments of of torture the 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 it's not really piano wire I guess I'm not really too Mm -hmm. sure what it is it looks like a butcher's something that a butcher might use Um, and the uh, the sticks uh, in Mr. Shimada's uh, ballet room I, I guess that's a heater and uh, 
those sticks are kind of interpreted by her as uh, and and used as the uh, acupuncture needles towards the end. So she's even using those implements of torture that were used on her, and she's reframing it to take back the power, which is apparently something abuse victims can can latch onto and relive in mm. a in a controlled way. I get. I guess I saw it as the um, the way that she uh, flips the power dynamic between. So with the music producer in the sack, removing the fingers, uh, almost, you know, without making a joke about it, but almost going Ace Ventura uh, when nature calls, throwing up uh, into a bowl and then feeding it to him like a bird would. Um, that to me... Oh, I heard she's method and oh she God. actually vomited into the bowl, <laughs> but he didn't eat the real vomit, but she she was, was method with her vomit. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, Jesus. Well, there you go then. That's uh, that's someone dedicated to the craft, but yeah, that that to me that's what it felt like is that she's removing the feet, removing the fingers. I am the person that's gonna that is gonna be the authority in this relationship. You depend on me. I don't depend on you. And I guess in in that one uh, sort of action, that's where I saw a feminist uh, film. I guess, and and like you said, perhaps that's informed by you know, what's happened over the last few years. And I'm I'm almost imparting that onto the film when maybe the film wasn't you know that, that was never the intention i think i'd subscribe to this idea more that it's um ex- examining the sort of fragile the fragility of and and that's maybe something that that again ties into modern readings but the fragility that underlines modern masculinity um especially at a time when um men are, are realizing that they shouldn't really have this sort of this idea of themselves as the all powerful gatekeepers of what is and isn't, you know, a society. So I think a lot of times when you, when you get people sort of pushing back against feminist readings or what they class as a feminist agenda, it's just a sense of it's an erosion of a power structure that was always massively imbalanced towards men. And I think certainly the way Yoshikawa yeah. talks in the in the bar when he turns around to those women and says that they're awful common girls who are full of themselves. Japan is finished. That's his. That's his. Ne- that's his next yeah. line. Yeah. Japan and 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 you're right, Ali. Like this idea that you know they're now there are women. There are women in his spaces, and those spaces used to be carved out for him. I think more so than a feminist reading. It's it's. Um, I mean, the the things are, are connected, certainly, but yeah, it's a it's an interrogation of of how fragile men can be and how fragile their place in society is if they don't have anything else to contribute other than the overwhelming inherent power that comes with being a male in a patriarchal society. The uh, difference between uh, Japan and uh, Korea when it came to that whole Me Too movement apparently was that Korea is more fierce and outspoken and Japan mm. uh, it just didn't quite take uh, the, sec- the sex crime rate in Japan is apparently only lower because it's unreported and people don't like to uh, women don't like to come forward and say what's happened because it's it's too revealing yeah. of their personal intimate details and, uh, you know, t- like we said before about the idols, telling the truth about their lives can actually be detrimental. And mm. they they prefer the We Too movement instead of the Me Too movement because they're trying to group together to support each other so that no one individual can be 
attacked for coming forward and victimized again. So uh, hopefully, you know, best of luck to mm. Japan. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, certainly that's certainly that ties into the kind of national character, the idea of, you know, yeah, that it's it's never really seen as a, as a positive to to stand out for any reason. It's, it's a collectivist society. Individualism is not really looked upon as something that uh, that is an attractive trait. So, with that said, should we should we get to it? Should we get to the the grand finale, which is uh, what most people who have seen the film uh, leave leave thinking of is the uh, is the infamous torture scene. So, uh, Asami has spiked uh, Aoyama's whiskey. Uh, with some kind of drug, which basically means that he can feel everything, but he can't move. He's completely uh, incapacitated in that re- in that respect. Uh, Matt, you referred to it before. She uses the acupuncture needles with the horrendous sound of kiri kiri kiri. Yeah, it's kiri kiri kiri. Which it's deeper in the translation that I watched, but um, I saw something else that referenced the German translation, which is actually tickle, tickle, tickle. <laughs> oh, right. I think that's worse. <laughs> so, which is, maybe that's worse. And uh, also, apparently, if you if you stub your toe or something in Japan, you can say, oh, Kiri. Oh, so wow. maybe it comes from that too. Okay. Well, I'll be sure to, if anyone ever says that to me, I'll be running <laughs> running to the hills. Um, but yeah, this is this is probably um, the scene that most people will refer to when they when they discuss the film um but actually it's not just a torture scene per se you know there are some lovely i say lovely uh, in the in the sort of the most morbid sense but you know there are there are these lovely touches that mike's got um one of my personal favorites is when uh, when she goes to chop the the foot off and there's just such a dismissive uh shot outside of the house and she just chucks it against the door and it splats yeah. it's so matter of fact oh i had it... a cool link in for that one there's a there's a scene earlier on one of the dates where she's wearing white and there's a there's a glass of red wine and it's framed like where the the blood splatter is eventually on her at the end ah. uh, after she throws the foot and it and it uh, the blood goes onto the the window and it's framed in the same place so i wondered if that was a little bit of red wine blood foreshadowing well well it's and it it is that um you know horror comedy it's a tightrope between the two and i do wonder if mike's you know it's it's for it's a gag isn't it basically i mean it's horrific but it pulls you out it's funny i mean it is played for a laugh um but yeah i mean the torture scene go what are what are our thoughts uh, the way he handled uh, it. I, you were talking about Toby Hooper before, and uh, apparently Toby Hooper said to Mike that when your film is refused to play on TV, that's when you become a real director. Hmm. And uh, the two of them are, um, I think, fans of each other. And there's a few uh, tie-ins to Texas Chainsaw. Uh, she's wearing kind of the apron, which is, yeah. you, could, you know, it's a yeah. bit tenuous, but could be a little Leatherface. Mm-hmm. And there's the moment where uh, Leatherface uh, uh, hits the guy on the head and it's like a cattle execution uh, and you know victims as animals is kind of a prevalent theme here with the bagman mm-hmm. uh eating like a dog and also uh when he gets whacked in texas chainsaw he kind of spasms the same way that uh oyama yeah spasms. no absolutely absolutely uh, and and i guess as well the way that mike handles the scene because um it's it's a triumph uh and masterfully handled when it comes down to the edit and the sound design, because really, just like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yes, there's a little bit more blood. You know, we have uh, 
the blood on the window and a little bit of splurting, but nothing, nothing gratuitous. Yeah, it's it's usually framed on her as she's it's got that kind of completely. It's a, a mixture between sort of dispassionate and vaguely amused. The expression on her face while she's doing it. Well, there's that strange moment where she's she's soaring it off very joyfully, mm. and they cut to uh, Mr. Shimada, you know, uh, yeah. masturbating yeah. in his wheelchair. You know, that's uh, the, the the sex death connection, or maybe she's you know getting pleasure from what she's doing. Oh, no, but also absolutely. the location I thought was interesting. Uh, there, it happens exactly where the son and his girlfriend are looking at the dinosaur books mm. uh, in in that location in the living room, and maybe it maybe it's tenuous but there could be a connection between the potential death of the father and mm. the and the death of the mother which is tied to the dinosaurs but um that's one thing that cropped up no i i i i think it's just brilliantly handled and and again i think it's really unfair to um to lump this into the category of just torture porn every time there's a seminal film like this there's going to be people mimicking it and possibly even misunderstanding it and as much as i like the first two hostile movies that they're, they're taking the the final uh, act of of audition and stretching it and for want of a better word the torture porn mm-hmm. genre is kind of born born from a film that that didn't intend to spawn it and so to to lump it in with with saw or uh what was the other one i saw somebody said devil's rejects and there was another one around the time that was, yeah uh, oh yeah. yeah yeah the um yeah rob zombie um, has a lot of that kind of stuff it's yeah it's it's, it's yeah it's like he took the the blood and guts stuff, yeah yeah but it doesn't it doesn't have the uh the depth of, mm. of audition the, the, but, uh, the first two hostels are, are really cool i think the the second one in particular apparently tarantino was going to remake westworld and uh before the tv show happened and he produced hostel 2 for eli roth and the the film ended up breaking down how the hostel is run and how this thing kind of came to be and, and uh, uh, really looking at the details of how they get the victims and uh, how it all functions and the men behind the scenes. And after he'd finished with Hostel 2, he felt like he'd explored everything he wanted to explore and he didn't want to do uh, Westworld anymore. So I think it reverted back to whoever had it and then the Nolans eventually picked it up and we got that really great TV show out of it. Right, so again, it well, I'll, I'll give Hostel 2 a go then because um, I, I enjoyed the first one for what it was, but I've never, I've not gone back and watched the sequel, so there you go. I think take, it's, yeah, three is a real drop-off, but one and two are, are worth a look, I think. Okay. And I guess one of the other things about the torture scene is it's not just a torture scene. You know, we start to... The film already... Uh, kind of has it throughout the film but we almost get into sort of david lynchian surrealism mm. whereby is it a dream uh, is it fantasy is it you know what is real what is not and mike starts playing around with timelines we start seeing asami as a girl then into a woman and that again has its own uh, implicit meaning and, and so this this torture scene if you again reading it just literally you could say, oh, wow, you know, she's just a wrong one, crazy. Mm. Um, you know, he got unlucky, but actually there is, there's far more going on. And um, yeah, it definitely requires rewatching to then get everything that Mike is throwing at the screen because there's quite a bit going on in these last sort of 15 minutes. It's um, actually, uh, again, usually I, I find it useful to just time these things out just to see what kind of, um, at what point in the film these things happen. Um, the point at which he passes out is around uh, an hour and 16 minutes, um, 
we are then uh, out of the torture scene and into that kind of fractured dream logic nightmare of the, you know, like you said, the the various timelines and and characters switching out for other characters. That lasts almost 15 minutes before we actually go back into the room to then proceed with, the, you know, the, the horrible extended real-time torture sequence, um, which itself lasts um, around... It's it's around ten minutes, which is, to be honest, very long. Mm. That is very long. Yeah. Well, you well you can actually go on YouTube and just type in torture scene audition, and they'll just do the whole. But it's, it seems uh, it seems really strange and and to my mind kind of stupid to divorce it from that fifteen minute contextualizing sequence before it that has you know it's an elevating sense of madness and terror, and it's that's the mm-hmm. thing that primes you for how just matter of fact and shocking the the remainder of the film is going to be i was i was trying to develop this uh, idea of this of a uh, uh, oyama's uh, mm. guilt dream it, the, uh, how much of the movie was actually real and how much of it was dreamt or uh, a hallucination of some kind and uh, that's all been dispelled by Mike so i abandoned it i got about halfway with it <laughs> it didn't all make sense but the one thing that i saw on the recent viewing uh, that makes me distrust everything that i see is that uh, there's a scene where Oyama is in his car in the pouring rain and he's listening to the audio of the audition casting call very early on. And uh, immediately after, Mike cuts to the childhood Asami in her room with the little window. And that's really cool to watch that little window because there's different things in there every time. Mm. There's like a Twin Peaks style yeah. smokestack at times. And then there's like a, sn- a snowy white... Uh, uh, haze, and then there's uh, pouring rain. And in this one, she's a little girl, but it's accompanied by the voiceover of the the commercial. So at that point, uh, you know, the idea of uh, what the visual mm. and the sound and does it mesh, it, it's just all over the place. And uh, I, you're not really too sure he what also, to trust. Um, he kind of clues you in as well, because like we said, the bulk of the film, especially the first part, is shot uh, relatively you know, low key, there's nothing really noticeable. It doesn't draw attention to itself as a filmmaking, but when he's in that car and he's putting on the, um, the radio, uh, he's talking on the phone beforehand. Mm. And as he's talking on the phone, the camera's inside the car and there's a quick cut to the exterior and you just hear the rain really, really hammering on the exterior of the car. And that's the only audio we have. Um, and then when you cut back into the car, there's a shot through the windscreen of a really, really bright, glaring red light from the car in front. Um, and nothing like that would happen accidentally because it doesn't. none of that needs to be in there. So, oh. yeah, whether that's like a little visual clue in, it's another sort of just a little breadcrumb in the trail to tell you that something's off, you know, from the very start of the film. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember if the rain... Does the rain in the car scene match the rain outside her window, or is it a smokestack when it goes to the the, the childhood? That's a good question. Like, if I can remember, I think it, I think I think it's um, I think I don't think it hmm. matches. I I, I I'm it doesn't I'm, match. Does it? I'm with you, Matt. I think um, you know, the, there are several interpretations. It's one of the reasons why uh, this film's so uh, 
rewatchable is that you can really interpret it as you wish and and i guess Mike being almost a bit ridley scott about it kind of oh, well it could be uh, an alien or it could be not um the, the fact that he's um it, it sort of leaves it to your own devices and there's a certain degree of ambiguity i think only helps the film because you, they even do a um a fake out doesn't it? there's a during that torture scene he wakes up he yeah. turns and in, in, in a conventional film... He's in the blue room again. That would be the moment where it's like, oh, I just saw it. It was all a dream. You know, we're in Jaws, mm-hmm. the revenge territory. But no, Mike then goes back. Uh, yeah, there are so many interpretations. And you're right, that, that early car scene doesn't really need to be as extended as it is. So clearly there's a take or there is something going on that Mike is trying to convey. Um, but I think purposely... Uh, sort of quite ambiguous about it. Again, very it's very David Lynchian, which is you know, if you're into that thing, which I am, then um, then all the all the more for it. I love it. When the son comes back and discovers uh, what's going on, she chases him with some Lynx Africa and tries to <laughs> put him down, and it's just not effective at all. Yeah, uh, and she gets kicked down a staircase for her trouble. She does, yeah, and I guess there's there's a, a some metaphor there you know the heir to uh Aoyama, uh being a son kicking her down the stairs again if you wanted to read into it um the stairs are important i mean you picked up on the doorway um theme there's a visual theme with doorways and also uh one with oh, yeah, stairs yeah. Hmm. no absolutely you know you you mentioned dinosaurs and the doorway motif runs throughout this whole film in the in the opening scenes he leaves the door open which then becomes uh uh something that will sort of uh, he'll regret later on in the film, which is how Asami gets into the house and then sees the uh, picture of his wife, therefore holding it against him, this you only love me and, and, and only me. Um, but throughout the whole film, Mike uses doorways to, to frame his compositions with doorways. And right at the end, there's a really, uh, there's a really important one where Asami's been kicked down the stairs Aoyama's lying down on the ground and they, they have a conversation between each other, but it's 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 flashback, right? Well, it's, she's, it's she's, she's, um, she's speaking, but yeah, she's reciting uh, dialogue from the first phone call, uh, from the mm-hmm. first date. Um, there's, there's one where it's... Where Something says, he said to her. Um, so yes, that's it's, right. It's, she's talking, she's saying like, I've been on my own all my life. I've never had anyone to talk to. I'm so happy you called. I, I've been waiting for your call. And the reverse shot on him, obviously at this point he is uh, destroyed. So you hear the voiceover of him saying, um, you'll find that life is wonderful one day. It's why we all carry on with our lives. Um, I found that just for a film that's, you know, that that is occasionally seen as being just part of a kind of shocking exploitation kind of thing. I find that kind of, I just a bit emotionally devastating. Like oh, no, as, as a and, 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 it's so kind of it's such a somber note to go out on. And it's the moment where I guess Aoyama sees Asami for for the first time, the reality versus the mm. expectation is is there's there's an there's a truth behind what she's saying to him. You know, in a way the whole film is predicated on a complete and utter misunderstanding. They're both characters that are seeking the same thing, love, affection, but they completely and utterly uh, misunderstand each other you know her with these lofty expectation of only me and him with you will be this idolized 
um, you know, wife who will bring me joy and I'll be able to rescue you from the troubles you've had in your past. It's, it's like I said, it's a wonderfully beautiful, tender moment. Well, guys, I think that's it, right? We've gone through audition. We've talked about uh, the themes and uh, the characters and what we took away from it. So I guess that leaves us to ask the uh, the important questions that we always do at, uh, at the end of the show. Uh, so we'll start with our, our special guest, Matt. Matt, did you okay. waste your youth on audition? And would you recommend it for uh, for our listeners to, to watch it now? Well, I'd only seen it twice in the first 36 years of my life. So uh, I, even if it was terrible, I wouldn't have wasted my time. But it's it's certainly not a terrible film. It's uh, looking back on it now, it has become the, the the gore scenes have become dulled by what followed. It spawned a genre that isn't necessarily related to it through no fault of its own. And I think uh, we've talked about Mike's depth before that that may not be in some of these other films, but the. The details are all there. It's um, uh, it's very easy to tell um, a mixed, cluttered, uh, confusing story. We've all made films in in this group, and it's very easy to make something that's just confusing for an audience. But it's much harder to make something that's uh, clear, uh, that is a, a, a clear story told well. But I think the fact that we're discussing audition and the um, the theories that are still attached to it um, means that it it is a masterpiece of sorts. It's still being discussed uh, today, and it's reframed by the by what's happening uh, currently in the world. And I think it still has its relevance. So um, I would recommend it, but as a caveat, I would I wouldn't look at the poster. I wouldn't look at the DVD cover, and I would just try to catch it late night on TV if it's on rather than build up your expectations too much and be let down by assuming that it's just like the other uh, films of its ilk. What about you, Devlin? Um, so I watched this a, a little more frequently in my youth. And yeah, I don't feel like it was time wasted. Um, uh, it was also, it it came to me as, as uh, an interesting time when I was getting to discover a lot of different types of cinema. And it was a, uh, it was a, an interesting one in that, as we said, a lot of the Japanese horror movies around that time tended to quite quickly become very similar or, or repetitive or uh, the impact was dulled. Um, the themes of this film that we've been talking about, stuff like uh, the interactions between men and women and, and how they deal with each other in a society which is patriarchal and and the misunderstandings that come with that. Um, the fact that it's woven into a film that takes its time to sit alongside characters, plural, but especially uh, Aoyama as our lead character, um, it makes it that much more brutal and that much more impactful. Um, and I think that's what sits with you, probably more so than than how the 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 actor portrayed on screen. It's it's more it's 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 the gut punch of of feeling it. And I do feel like it was, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting and worthwhile provocation to put an audience through that. You know, sometimes, uh, sometimes you do have to put the audience through a ringer in order to make a point. Mm. Um, so I absolutely recommend it. And, uh, having seen it twice in the space of a week and, and now having seen it, of course, knowing exactly what happens throughout it, that it doesn't 
diminish the impact of how good a film it is and how it does act on you every time. You never really leave that film uh, unaffected. Yeah, it's um, it's a definite recommend for myself, and I definitely didn't waste my youth watching this on uh, late night on Channel Four. Uh, I think, uh, well, I don't think I can surmise uh, my thoughts any better than you two. Uh, I, I genuinely think it's a it's a masterpiece. Uh, I found very little that I could sort of criticize the film for. Um, I think the only thing I would say is that the caveat would be that your expectations may not be met as as Matt. Uh, spoke about if you think you're uh, going to experience a, a sort of a blood a bloodbath because that's not going not the film that Mikay made and, uh, and nor should it have been. Uh, I think that this is one of those films that you can go back to, and there are there are discussions to be had beyond even this this episode that we could still go into, but that would make a very very long and probably uninteresting listen for uh, for a podcast. So yeah, no, it's a f- definite recommend for me i love the genre bending um i love the conventions that are being played with and i just yeah i love the the way it's shot uh, and the way that mike presents this truly quite horrific tale uh cautionary tale uh, and frames it in a way with these characters that are not black and white they're they're such shades of gray uh and I also love the ambiguity of the ending. So yeah, it's a definite recommend for me. For for those of you who are uh, who are seeking out the film, uh, it's currently available on Amazon, but via the Amazon Arrow channel add-on. Yeah, uh, it's which... uh, Arrow Video has a uh, has an add-on channel which I think is like four ninety nine a month, and I cannot recommend it highly enough because their back catalogue is is pretty amazing. Well, there you go then. Um, and we are definitely going to what? Maybe get like three pound from Amazon for that plug. I hope so. <laughs> um, but if not, uh, the Blu-ray is available in all good retailers that sell Blu-rays. Um, I personally think that the Blu-ray is actually worth it. Yeah, there's plenty of extra features on there. So we'll uh, we'll say our goodbyes. So it's Gally in Glasgow signing out. Thanks for listening, everybody. And it's Devin in London. Nice to talk to you guys. And Matt especially. Nice to talk to you again. Thank you so much. This is Matt in South Korea. Have me back sometime and I'd love to do it again. We will do, buddy. We will do. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll uh, see you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Easy.